Welcome back to uh, Paperless Federalist number three. I'm Kerry. I'm Justin. And uh, when we last left off, Justin, I believe you were uh, throwing some pretty serious accusations towards the John Jayward side of the fence. Uh, if I recall, uh, you were pretty much saying he left the country on the rocks, decided to <laughs> make a nice career for himself as governor of New York. Uh, pretty serious accusations. Well, I see. So, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, in case you're just tuning in for the first time and you haven't gone back and uh, listened to the extensive library... Um, that comprises our first and second episode. <laughs> the, um, it, where we left off number two, uh, for those listening now, was that the question I was proposing at the time was, what happened to John Jay? Why did he knock out numbers two, three, four, and five, uh, and then seemingly disappear and then only contribute uh, number 64 uh, to the cause uh, of the... 85. 85. 85 thank you. 85 uh, overall papers. Uh, I think he did, did he do six too. I can't. Remember. I think it was, no. Uh, six was six was Hamilton. Is when Hamilton chimes back in. Uh, so, so obviously in today's recording session, we're looking to do three, four, and five. Three, four, and five. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we're gonna wrap up the bulk of uh, Jay's efforts. The so, Jay verse. The the Jay verse. Um, so so I did a little looking into because I think you did reference the fact that you thought that he'd been injured and maybe that had been in a riot yeah that's a riot that had been a, played a part as to why I mean didn't have any details about the riot I didn't know if it was a concert it or was not a concert um, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the uh, uh, first national symphony so I understand you've done some research on it since. well I, you know I did what I could find and 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 again to the benefit of our listeners understand that while Carrie and myself are both attorneys and we've, you know both approaching. Um, some around the ten-year mark is as being practicing attorneys. Neither of us are uh, would claim to be historians. So, Not licensed historians, at least. <laughs> just maybe passively. And and so we don't have, um, you know, there's going to be times where we, we may pose a question, have to go look up the answer, uh, and bring it back. Uh, there might be times we're just flat wrong, and we find that out. We'll correct yeah, ourselves. Exactly. Um, and, uh, and there's sometimes we might bring back part of the answer, and the remaining part of the answer being like there is no answer that we're aware of. Yeah, exactly. So. Okay, so you made uh, uh, we've talked about this riot and we've talked about uh, Mr. J's injuries, and so here's what happened. Um, there was something in the occurred in New York as known as the Doctors' Riot, which sounds like an odd title, but that's that, that is odd. Uh, typically, doctors <laughs> not known for rioting. No, they yeah they tend to not cause violence, um, and that's it, it, it's even more of a misnomer because they're not the ones that cause the violence in this case either. Um, so, a uh, background to this. Um, a lot of New York City itself was built, unfortunately, by slaves, okay? Uh, and they were happened to be buried outside um, uh, the city plots uh, in, in small, small plots, one of which is now known as the African Burial Ground National Monument. Uh, There's also, at the time, you know, there was class status uh, in that time in America, and, and, and people who were uh, lower income, uh, referred to as paupers, um, mm-hmm. also had their own burial ground and were not allowed to be buried in the same cemetery as... Uh, the, the pauper's grave. Yes. And um, and that ha- that graveyard happened to be located near the African Burial Ground National Monument, or what would become known as the African Burial Ground National Monument. Okay. Uh, both of these happened to be near Columbia College, uh, which at the time was only school of medicine uh, in New York City. Now, due to various taboos and the ability that they're no ability to actually preserve an entire body. Mm-hmm. Um, students and doctors would procure bodies uh, for study by exhuming them from nearby cemeteries mm-hmm. or or paying essentially grave robbers, uh, known at the time as resurrectionists. Um, <laughs> That's to, a nice spin they put on <laughs> nice that. Spin. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, 
they would go around and, and essentially rob and rob the graves of lower you know income in citizens and or former slaves. Uh, and, and wealthy families were known to often pay armed guards uh, to stand post at the graves of their uh, recently deceased loved ones for oh, up geez. to two weeks to prevent anyone from robbing their tombs. Because once you pass that two-week threshold, apparently the usefulness of, a, of the cadaver to, to uh, di- dissection and study uh, was limited. So they Do were the ordinary decay process. Just I'm ordinary guessing. decay process, yeah. Um, so in April 1788... What happens is that a group of children were playing outside of the New York hospital. And it happened to be that uh, they were in near a room where a student at the time named John Hicks, um, who was a student of the physician by the name of Richard Bailey, uh, Mr. Hicks was, was uh, dissecting an arm. And he felt it to be in good form to wave the arm out of a window at the children. Oh, God. And claim, <laughs> hold on, it gets better, claim to the child, hey, this is your mother's arm. I just dug it up. Watch it or I'll smack you with it. And that's reportedly what he said. Uh, or something to that effect. Um, now so he's a man be... of high sophistication yes, in reading, yes. obviously. Oh, of course, obviously. Um, <laughs> so the child ran home and told his father. And, and it, it happened to be, and I don't know if it actually was this child's mother's arm. That might but... be the next thing we have to investigate. <laughs> However... <laughs> um, this child's mother happened to be recently deceased, and he went home and told his father. His father then went to the graveyard where his former wife, uh, Y, um, or was supposed to have been resting, mm-hmm. um, and he got there, and the grave, you know, the the, the casket was still uh, unearthed. It had not yet been covered, mm-hmm. and so he opened it up and found his wife's body was missing. Um, oh. And so then he was obviously enraged, got some followers, and they went out to the hospital, and they uh, were attempting to essentially lynch any of the doctors they could find inside, uh, but they uh, a large crowd formed uh, over a period of time. Uh, they eventually broke in and destroyed medical equipment and and specimens that they happened to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and roughly two thousand people gathered at one point, um, leading to a widespread rioting. And the few physicians that hadn't fled town uh, ended up being taken to the jail for their safety. Um, and how's J factor into all this? Well, the next day. Mm. The next day. So the things kind of settle down a little bit overnight, but they kind of go around overnight. I'm sorry, before they settle down, they actually, they go to uh, Hicks's home uh, in search of him. Uh, they and they, they Hicks is that doctor was holding the arm Hicks, up there. Hicks was the one that thought it was good to, uh, he was a student, medical student at the time, to, ah. to wave a, 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 an arm that he was attempting to dissect at a child. I see. Uh, so they were attempting to find Mr. Hicks. Um, and... Uh, they did. They didn't, apparently didn't search the attic because that's where he hid out. Okay. Um, and and he managed to avoid being caught uh, by the mob. So the next day, more doctors leave the city. Governor Clinton's calls out the militia. Um, the mob went uh, back to Columbia College and again uh, destroyed more specimens, more instruments there. And it was at Columbia College where both John Hamilton and John Jay uh, appear. Uh, John Hamilton tries to calm the mob, talks to him, and tries to get him to calm down, and they don't. Uh, Jay, uh, was... This is John Hamilton again, not any racial Alexander Hamilton, I'm assuming. Yes, John Hamilton, yes, I'm sorry. Um, and, and, um, but John Jay was there. And at some point, he's hit in the head with either a brick and or stone. Uh, different... They weren't having any of the common down. They were not, they were not. And uh, the injuries apparently were fairly severe. Uh, I, you know, I couldn't quite get a, a hammer lock on how severe they were. Uh, you know, the least unconscious possible skull fracture. Either way, 
I think something would be considered to be severe head trauma yeah. in the 1780s. Um, so, <laughs> or even now, I, I even, no, no, I, even I, now, if but I mean, like, hit me in the head with a brick, I think I probably considered that uh, notable. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to su- su- <laughs> suggest that it, it wasn't. I was suggesting that he suffered this injury okay. and highlighting the fact that it occurred in the 1780s. I just wanted to make clear that we haven't like started. <laughs> yeah. Humanity hasn't developed armored heads no, or no, anything no, no, since no, the time. No. Um, so. I mean, I wouldn't want to suffer the injury now, let alone then, is yes. my point. So, um, all this happens. Ultimately, then, the militia then goes to the jail uh, that evening of the second day of the riot to try to um, get at the remaining doctors in town, um, I'm sure to do them some bodily harm. Uh, the militia was there. Um, they were attempting to not uh, engage the rioters, but then someone threw a rock or a brick and hit the head of the militia who was... My understanding was Baron Frederick von Steuben, uh, who oh. was who was a American Revolutionary War hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, after having been hit in the head himself, though, he decided to order the militia to fire upon the mob um, of citizens, and about eight people were were killed, uh, roughly, and others were injured. And then the doctors came out of the jail and treated the injured. Uh, well, that was nice of them. It was nice of them. Yes, I was wondering what happened <laughs> you know, if any of the uh, rioters against the doctors got injured. No, I would have so, assumed that getting medical care for them would have been especially difficult. Yeah. Uh, so. Interestingly, there's a, the funny the thing is is um, this riot was comprised of a mob of people who were of the lower end of the social spectrum, mm-hmm. and really the doctors in the society would have been the one one of the few institutions in the hospital would have been one of the few institutions in the society at the time that would have treated everyone for the most part fairly equally, mm-hmm. regardless of social status or money or upbringing. I mean, yeah. if you're sick, you're sick. They would treat you. Um, now. Obviously, the I guess they did, there, are limits, were, yeah, there that, are limits. Uh, you know, there are limits. They to cancel out a lot of their goodwill by uh, digging up, digging the, up uh, in lower class, lower class uh, uh, deceased, well, and hey, uh, that's where the bodies. Out. That's where the bodies they could get at that were still um, fairly usable to them at the time, where they could get from. Now, so Jay though Jay head trauma. So I thought, wow, here's an excuse. Now I understand why he disappeared for sixty essays. However, oh. yes. <laughs> This riot occurs in April 1788. The fifth essay was published on November 10th, 1787. And the 64th essay, his final one, published March 5th, 1788. This riot occurring the next month in April of 1788. So the riot and the head drama does not explain away the absence, at least in the interim. Now, surely I understand him not partaking in the final 20, roughly, <laughs> having suffered a significant blow to the head. But I'm just curious. I have to do a little more digging. So right. this is a to be continued. To do a little more digging into what happened uh, between November of 77 to March of uh, 78 uh, to well, find some, out I could see maybe where he some, was at. I, I, would yeah. not, I would not in any way fault John Jay no. if uh, <laughs> some part of the, the between the Dr. Triad and the Last one he got published in March of 1788. Maybe originally the original working titles of those were like "Doctors are off white doctors" or <laughs> "All writers should be shot." And maybe Chuck, maybe uh, Hamilton just had to chuck those. You mean? Oh yeah, after yeah, his like number 64. If he was I think you really it. just need to take some time away. Well, I think I, I so that's, I'm glad that uh, you've really set the record straight on uh, at least partially forgiving Jay for his inability while. Uh, under the effect of severe head injury to not continue towards, towards the latter third of these I understand even why, though it's not complete forgiveness he was there but I just 
Now, and don't, don't, I mean, to the people who are listening, assuming we have any, uh, I, I don't, I mean, John Jay, obviously, founding father, governor of New York, goes on to become, after the ratification uh, of the Constitution, the first Chief Justice of the United States of America, and is clearly very highly regarded in many aspects, mm-hmm. and deservingly so. I had only originally come up with the question of, I'd noticed the disparity in the volume of work between his contributions to this particular effort that we're mm-hmm. discussing and the other two individuals, um, uh, Hamilton and Madison. And it was it, it occurred to me, like, well, what happened to Jay? And so that's the basis of it. So all kidding aside, uh, I'm not, you know, in any way uh, attempting, I shouldn't be, I hope nobody thinks that I'm, I'm being unfair to Jay. I just noticed there's a big gap, and I'm curious, uh, between his 5th and 64th, um, between the, between the fifth and the number sixty four, as far as the Federalist Papers are concerned, and I'm wondering what happened. Now, clearly, like we said, at post sixty four, when he was suffering from this recovering from his head trauma, a possible skull fracture. I'm not entirely sure. Um, one, I'm sh- shocked that he lived at all. <laughs> Two, I'm even more shocked that he went on to become the Supreme Court of the United States uh, for for several years. So, um, have, after having suffered such a blow and it occurring in again seventeen eighty eight. Which, yeah. You know. Well, you know, maybe uh, the, the other part of that is, uh, you know, segueing back here to Federalist number three. And, and uh, yeah. today's, you know, the, the next few episodes are going to be on uh, Jay's efforts. At, you know, three, four, and five are all by Jay. You yes. know, uh, part of that, is after calling you to task for running him down the road, I'm afraid I'm going to have to run him down the road from a different angle. Okay. It seems like. Uh, he sort of starts repeating himself in three, four, and five, and we'll, so. But let's get let's get to that then. It, uh, it does a bit. W- um, what what does he say in three? Give us the, give us the five minute summary of uh, what what his message is in Federalist Number Three. So in three, uh, he really he again picks up on this topic of concerning dangers from foreign force and influence, and here he starts off by uh, suggesting that what he wants to talk about in this particular one of his what is really a four-part effort on his part, two, three, four, and five put together, uh, that he wants to talk about how uh, a strong central federal government would best result in the best method for providing the safety to the people of the country. Um, and so he gets into that. And then he discusses about how it would best protect from foreign influence and foreign arms, as well as dangers that arise from domestic issues here in, the, in at least the North American continent. And so he goes on and he talks about, well, there's different ways in which wars start, uh, either for, for just causes and whether or not those just causes are, are, are real or pretend and whether or not which ones are provoked or invited and, and which, which way would people be more safe under a loose-knit set of confederacies of three to four confederacies uh 13 colonies all together independent uh or 13 states i should say all together independent uh or as one union um so he goes over and he starts talking about the just causes of war and he he picks up initially on this idea that you know america at the time had already entered into half dozen treaties with uh numerous countries many of which were were maritime that uh again america here would the people would probably be better off because America as a whole, as one unified nation, would more consistently acknowledge the laws of nations and in applying treaties and treaties would be applied uniformly and the relations with foreign powers would be uniform as opposed to being disjointed perhaps coming either from 13 states or from three or four confederacies. He notes also that the government itself would run more efficiently because they would be able to pull from essentially the cream of the crop from from the best citizenry throughout 
all of the states as opposed to the citizens of just one state, uh, which uh, if the states remained loosely knit or if it's just a confederacy comprised of a few states, their talent pool would be less. Then he said also that because they've got this essentially um, all-star team uh, that comes to the, the you know capital uh, at that point, everything is going to flow better. The administration, political councils, and the judicial decisions of national government will be more wise, systematical, and judicious than those of individual states. And as a result of everything running smoother... Which uh, it, of course, will. Of course. Because I mean, it's the all-star team. Why, everybody, why would it not? <laughs> everybody loves watching the Pro Bowl. And um, <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's the highest-rated show. Absolutely. But because everything's going to be going so well... That in and of itself would make us more safe. He goes on then to get the circles back to this idea of the laws of nations. Uh, he mentions that the the courts again would be comprised of uh, really just the best and and would render the best decisions. He also talks in about the other just causes of war, which can proceed from direct or unlawful violence. Um, and he says again that one good national government affords vastly more security uh, against those dangers than. Could be derived from any other quarter, and he notes that usually this these arrive uh, these violences come up because of the passions or interests interests as from part of the union. So a particular state or states might be affronted, whereas the whole country wouldn't suffer this national uh, insult. And so uh, a calmer hand would be at the wheel if it was a national government than if it was one or two states put together. He makes note that you know there's some states that border. Um, Native Americans, uh, or it, it, he calls them Indians here, uh, and he points out that you know there's been no national war against the Indians, whereas the individual states have had flare-ups. Uh, and there's also this idea that several of the states, some border Spanish territories, some border British-owned territories still at this time, and that there might be dust-ups between those states and either the British or the or the Spanish uh, Spain. But America as a whole it might not rush right back into war with either of those countries. Uh, again, with a calmer, calmer uh, hand at the at the helm, and that he mentions that the pride of the national government wouldn't be, uh, you know, um, get get so worked up. So pretty much a summary of the second uh, paper. And now, Carrie, I think you had at least something that you wanted to. to yeah, I was going to say that's, that's something similar. I thought about uh, Federalist Number Three is that uh, two? No, three. I'm sorry. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> they, like I said, they all sound the same. <laughs> they right. all sound the same. I think yeah. that's a legitimate criticism given brought against Jay. Uh, yeah, it's like uh, this is this is pretty straightforward national security argument. You know, he's really he, he's appealing to fear in a way. He's he's saying, look. If you want it to be safe when the big bad Brits and the scary Spanish come come you know come around, then national government is the way to do that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I like how it lays out uh, that you know, of course, of course, America is only going to try to get involved in just wars, and oh, yeah. of course, this you know to mm-hmm. limit the number of just wars, it's best to have one country instead of many. Uh, but if we do happen to get in an unjust war, just yeah. in case, you know, yeah. being more powerful couldn't hurt. Couldn't hurt us. Couldn't hurt. So one thing he mentions I thought that was interesting is that he, he talks about the just causes of war for the most part arise either from the violation of treaties or from direct violence. And he mentions that America had got involved with numerous treaties uh, or with six foreign nations, um, all, uh, all of them being maritime nations except Prussia. Now you mentioned, that's, that's ironic, uh, that he mentions Prussia here because I, I think you'd mentioned that somebody had sent a letter... Asking the king of Prussia to be... It was Alexander Hamilton. Okay, so Hamilton's asking 
the king of Prussia to come be our a king for us because he was uh, prior to the Constitution being ratified. Well, and, it was a sad practice at the time. I'm sorry? It was a common practice at the time. You need a king. There's yeah. always a king willing to open up shop oh. at a franchise yes. operation. There you go. Well, the interesting thing, though, is he picks, the, the, what, they picked the one country that would have difficulty reaching us because they're not a maritime nation? I mean, like, Well, maybe what they were thinking was yeah. uh, that, you know, unlike uh, Britain, since yeah. Prussia wasn't a maritime country and wouldn't have a lot of influence, they could pretty much do what they wanted to. Even though they technically had a king? Yeah, okay. exactly. Well, I, mean, I guess that's one thought. Uh, I hadn't thought about it like that. I was thinking, I mean, like, well, that, you know, you're, you're picking somebody to protect you that has really limited ability to help hey, you out. What they <laughs> wanted to do is what people want to do now. But basically... America wanted to telecommute at the time. It didn't want to go to work. It wanted to work from home with its king. And uh, just relax, watch some TV when it got its work done. Who Best to do that, to have a boss who doesn't own a car, okay. to get to where they're at. So basically, America was a lazy telecommuter at the time. That's maybe the opportunistic way of characterizing it. <laughs> That's... Definitely a unique way. Um, but in point of fact, uh, I was curious when I saw that, you know, you mentioned the six trees at the time. We didn't spell them out. Yeah. I actually was able to get the the uh, the, the list source. of the six people. I mean, obviously, one of the countries has got to be Britain. Yeah. Because, you know, we actually did have a treaty of peace with them at the end of the Revolutionary War. The treaty, but the there's an interesting trivia right. there, too. One of these treaties is with the first sovereign state to recognize the United States is our oldest treaty currently in effect. Do you want to guess who our oldest treaty is with and the first country to ever recognize us? I guarantee you never guess. Just rattle rat off three names real quick. <laughs> well, okay. Um, now you're going to make me stretch. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say... I mean, I was going to say France, but that would be obvious. I wouldn't count that against you. And therefore, I'd wrong. be stunned <laughs> and amazed if you mentioned this country. Stunned and amazed. Okay. Um, three names. Just rattle them off. Poland. Nope. Um, I already gave you France, Poland. Hey, I already gave you him by saying it'd be a hard one to guess. Yeah, uh, I don't know, China. No. <laughs> nope. Yeah, this is your final answer. Give okay. me one more country. Oh, man. I don't. Uh, I'll give you a hint Skull and Crossbones. Pirates. Caribbean, like some Caribbean country? Like, it's in the Marine Fight song. Oh, Halls and Mons, the only the shores of Tripoli. Well, it's not directly in there, but it's related. Okay. No, I don't know it. You can, I don't know. <laughs> the the then sultanate of Morocco. 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 That was the Moroccan-American Treaty of Friendship from 1786. Is the know. oldest treaty we have. Huh. So the, one was Morocco, but the, the first one we had as a country under the Continental Congress was with France. The set, in 1778 and 1782, we had the Treaty of Amity and Com- Commerce with the Dutch Republic, Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three, uh, number three was seventeen eighty three. Our treaty with Sweden mm-hmm. apparently was broken at some point. Mm-hmm. It's not the oldest. Okay. Uh, and then there was in seventeen eighty three the Treaty of Paris that ended the Revolutionary War. So that was number four. And then seventeen eighty five the Treaty with Prussia. And then finally seventeen eighty six the Treaty with Morocco. Okay. So those were the six. There you go. France, Dutch Republic, Sweden, Prussia. England or United Kingdom and Morocco. Okay. Well, so, all so, the apparently Sweden was a nominal naval power at the time. Okay. Huh. Prussia was not so much. Not so much. So, um, and he mentions that America here again has extensive commerce: Portugal, Spain, Britain, 
and again, specifically with respect to Spain and Britain, we at that time had borders with them because again, Britain and Spain still had yeah uh, Britain, Port- Canada, Britain, Canada, Spain down near the Florida, 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 Florida Texas, Mexico, etc. Yeah, um, France had the entire uh, later Louisiana Purchase. So again, the uh, concern here is being that we're not that far removed from Europe in the sense that we're sharing borders with. You know, countries that, like today, we obviously do not have a physical border with. Uh, yes, and I can see this, the the points he makes about uh, those states who were could get us into a into a fight because, you know, it's one of those arguments about uh, state versus national interests. Um, mm-hmm. You know about you know the points he makes about whether or not it's better to have one agglomerated national interest or let states go as they will because uh, <clears throat> this came out in uh, 1787. And as you know, we didn't purchase the make the Louisiana purchase purchase until 1803. You know, from my readings in history, it, it appears that you know for a long time preceding the Louisiana Purchase, um, there was a lot of states uh, along the Mississippi River, or then territories, who were highly interested in acquiring New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Everything else was just well, on the Louisiana Purchase was just flew from that. But you know, I some of them I'm sure had you know the thought might have gone through their minds of. Hey, maybe we should make a run on New Orleans and grab yeah. that because you know they could. New Orleans could put a tariff uh, and control the trade of all those states trying to go down the Mississippi, Absolutely. out into the Gulf. Yeah, uh, that would that would extend all the way up to Ohio and Pennsylvania and Kentucky. Yeah, uh, uh, we're going south along the waterways. Exactly. Exactly. Um, um, and obviously, because Allegheny and the Rivers feed into the Ohio, and the Ohio feeds into the Mississippi. And down out to New Orleans. For anybody who's, who's questioning why, why we made the geographic reference. Exactly, exactly. Um, and similarly, speaking of Ohio and Kentucky, um, oh, well, before I move on to that, yeah. um, and of course, states that are already on the Atlantic seaboard would obviously be less interested and not want to get yeah. involved in a war with uh, France or, Sp- or with yeah. France and, over. Uh, New you, met, you mentioned New Orleans as a potential. You know, you also let's not forget the St. Lawrence Seaway on the north. Okay, exactly. Um, uh, where again, where if they felt if any of these states felt slighted by Britain or in the north or or um, France or Spain in the south, uh, they themselves might be want to uh, run right into war or some sort of armed conflict, mm-hmm. and you know. A cooler, a cooler set of hands at the national, at the nat, from a national level, might, might be able to prevent a full-on war, uh, as opposed to one particular state's interest. And well, this is an area where their, their argument seems to work more about. You know, I think we've talked in the past episodes about how, in some ways, it seemed like it doesn't really stand the test of time. How mm-hmm. uh, Hamilton and Jay and the other founding fathers seem to think that. Most political conflicts, most conflicts in, uh, as far as uh, in politics, uh, deciding what to do about a given issue would be conflicts between states and state interests rather than um, party interests or interests of parts of society, um, you know, as, as you know, has come to the fore more since then. But in this particular sense, you know, with the expansion of America uh, in the you know initial years, it does seem more likely that these geographic expansion issues were more... You know, state interests rather than, you know, Whigs versus Federalists versus Anti-Federalists or Whigs or whoever. You know, mm-hmm. it was uh, not a political issue so much as a regional one. Yes. Going back to uh, Ohio and Kentucky, uh, you know, we mentioned the interest that one or two states might have, a small number of states might have over the nation in, in acquiring uh, New Orleans. But similarly, uh, 
I know thanks to my uh, long history of attendance at uh, the many fine institutions of Ohio Outdoor Musical Theater, uh, Tecumseh, Blue Jacket, etc., about Ohio yeah. history, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the themes that really comes across in uh, Kentucky and Ohio history and other states that were then the frontier is how those people who were on the frontier... You know, they were interested in expanding, you know, expanding westward and settling the land uh, because, you know, that was in their interest. It was free land. It was there for them, you know, there that they could grab and take and set up a life for themselves. Um, treaties be damned, you know, mm-hmm. with, the, with the Native Americans at the time. You know, the, the, you know, whereas like Delaware, Rhode Island, they weren't really making a grab to uh, acquire land around Detroit. By no. contrast, so <laughs> what would be George? They were uh, they were not looking forward to it. You know, they, this the states that were already sort of uh, we talked last last episode about westward expansion. Yeah, and how the states you know uh, agreed uh, on the east agreed to not expand infinitely westward. Mm-hmm. So they didn't really want to have a conflict with uh, Native Americans as much because for them it's like okay, there's nothing in it for us. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you lived in Ohio or Kentucky or Tennessee or any of those states on the frontier, um, for you, you want you know it's more of an interest. The the conflicts with Native American peoples were more an interest because your direct financial interest was more an issue of you wanted to have your safe land, you know. And that's been that was an issue more in Ohio and Kentucky than it was in you know Massachusetts or Delaware, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. And so that that directly that's that that's probably one of the things he was directly addressing. Of look, we don't want those people heading over the Appalachian Mountains. To get out of hand and get us into a war for their own interests, when we as a country don't want that. That, that those are the two things I really first thought of when he talked about national versus regional interests. Yeah. Of you know the interest in New Orleans and the interest in uh, moving westwards. Uh, you know, and quite honestly, uh, you know, tending to repeatedly break uh, treat you know land use treaties with the Native American people in order to for the settlers to go over there and take what yeah. they wanted. Yeah, and he mentions he talked about this as well, where he talks he specifically points out that the that the union itself has not gotten into a armed conflict with the Native Americans. Um, well, it only been around for ten years though. I, but if he he goes out of but there apparently had been some brush ups between in on a regional scale. Oh yes, you know, yes. and and he pointed out like well there might see there's these little dust ups that have occurred thus far, but nothing on a national scale. And so you know you'd be again the national effort. From a, a national army would and and, and and leadership would prevent some full scale conflict um, versus these and I can see that as the nation has the restraining influence of of telling the leaders there, look, you need to cool out, you need to be a little bit aggra- less aggressive here mm-hmm. versus the hypothetically throws out of regional confederacies. Yeah, you could see where if there was a regional government move there, then of say. You know, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, and, you know, I'm not sure to what extent they were organized back then, but mm-hmm. the lands were to become like Alabama, Mississippi, et cetera, on down. Um, you know, it, that confederacy consisting of those those states would have more of an interest in, okay, we're going to aggressively span, expand westwards versus the ones to the east would be a more of a restraining influence on them. And he applies this again, and I think we ever, maybe already mentioned it here uh, earlier in this is that uh, just like with the Native Americans, with Spain and Britain, again, uh, were the bordering the, those that bordered the Spain and Britain at the time, if they had some particular cause of the day, it wouldn't necessarily result in a full-scale war. 
you know, if you had a, one federal government versus individual states or small confederacies? Because at, in the National Congress, mm-hmm. you would have, um, you know, those states who wanted to get involved in the conflict to be more aggressive. Yes. Probably be outvoted by the n- more numerous number of states who didn't. But in a way, is this really as, ar- as strong an argument as Jay tries to present, you know, towards the National Constitution? Because... Under the Articles of Confederation, the one power that was already enumerated to this to the uh, national government was foreign policy. I mean, under the Articles of Confederation, in a nutshell, that, the articles seem to be militarily and foreign policy strong and weak on almost every single thing else, primarily domestic policy. Yeah. Um, the Constitution, at first glance, doesn't appear to be a huge departure on the foreign policy relations side, more on the domestic relations side. It does. I think that what maybe he's getting at is just that if you have one voice speaking on behalf of the nation as a whole, mm-hmm. um, and he makes mention of these treaties, yeah. then there'll be consistency. The application will then therefore afford people more safety. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, you know, it's not that Maybe the federal government under the Constitution would have like some huge uptick in power with respect to foreign policy. Just that it's he's he's I think trying to to advocate for the the benefit of of a cooler hand at the helm of the president of of the federal government and also uh, you know an e- a more equal application of policy when dealing with so- other sovereigns than if you got in regional situations with. I guess to me, I just don't see the the big difference. Technically, maybe there was a difference in practice that we're not yeah. seeing here, just looking at the documents. Yeah. But it just seems like the foreign policy power of the articles was stronger. It's the ability to in, regulate in, internal relations that is a lot stronger in the Constitution than the articles. And in a way, it I is, feel like yeah. Jay is burying his lead because, um, you know, this whole paper on foreign policy, the more interesting thing to me is the argument he, he says he's going to make, but he doesn't. You know, at the very beginning, he, he lays out this outline. Um, a few paragraphs down, he talks about how he's going to, uh, you know, uh, discuss the effect of uh, unity versus separation in regards to its effect on foreign arms and influence, as well as dangers from the like kind ar- arising from domestic causes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wrote in this paper and the next few we're going to discuss. He, he does well lay out why stronger unity is uh, very useful in insofar as uh, you know preserving national security against foreign power. Mm-hmm. But after he talks about you know he's got to talk about the similar argument regarding assumedly uh, domestic arms and influence you know internal. He doesn't ever talk about it really. My only thought there is that instead of is he mean domestic in the sense of. North America as a continent as opposed to the United States. Well, I mean, at the time, they're under the Articles, so I I would assume that foreign is anyone not part of the Articles. Okay. Which is the colonies. But I guess guess that's just my question is, are we reading his his use of the word domestic, are we reading it to mean... Well, he doesn't say domestic. Yeah. Um, No, he does. Yeah, at the the beginning, where he talks about... You just highlighted... You're right, you're right. He does say domestic. Um, And and, he says light kind. He he doesn't say... Domestic arms and influence, but he says the like kind from domestic causes. Okay. But he would have good reason to, because, you know, one of the things they're talking, you know, 
domestic arms and influence, I would assume he would be talking about something like Shay's Rebellion. You know, a, a civil uprising and you know, domestic you know, influences regarding um, the states were arguing about who controlled what parts of rivers, who could tariff one another. So it seems right. like he would have a great a great paper he could have written on that about he the would. real problem of how the states are fighting one another. But he seems to spend the whole time discussing something that he would. doesn't seem to be a problem under the existing articles. And, and I would just say that, uh, you know, perhaps Hamilton picks up that, that lost thread in number six. That's why I think Hamilton does into the curb. Okay. Because uh, he's like, look. Getting off track? You're burying our lead. <laughs> We're talking about so, things that are already good under the articles. Uh, because, hey, there's already, between 1776 and the time this is written, yeah. they've got these six treaties. Yeah. So... You know, and I think it's probably something that they're somewhat effective at foreign relations. Know, we mentioned this before. The Anti-Federalists were talking about, "Hey, look, we're doing all right. Mm-hmm. We're doing. We're made, we got treaties with other nations. People are recognizing us." Um, and you had uh, thought about the Anti-Federalist Papers. What, what was that? You, had, you we had talked about um, prior to starting. As far as you know, when we spoke last time, you were you were referring to a certain subset of of the wider population of Anti-Federalist Papers and. Um, I think it was a point that you wanted to. Well, there's, there's, there's really a lot in, uh, about regarding the Anti-Federalist Paper. I think the the we're gonna get most strongly into the Anti-Federalist Papers when we get into uh, Federalist Number Five here, because that was what I like about that. What Federalist Number Five is, it's when the Anti-Federalists most directly and obviously re- respond to one of the writings of the Federalists. Okay, but there are points here that uh, they make that I think are good to counterpoint to represent their point of view is Jay keeps talking here about, well, this, having one country is obviously better than having three or four confederacies. That would be silly. That would be silly. And in the anti-Federalist writings that respond to Federalists 1 through 6, and these general themes he's laying out here about one country versus separate states yeah. versus three or four sub, sub-countries, mm-hmm. the, the anti-Federalists seem pretty annoyed that he keeps producing, I mean, what I think can only accurately be described as a straw man. Mm-hmm. Where they say, no one is talking about three or four sub-countries. <laughs> okay. Why do you keep... And, and he keeps bringing this up again and again oh, and again. Yeah. And say, yeah. These anti-federalists, these other people, they want us to be three or four different countries. That would be stupid. Yeah. And the anti-federalists come back and say, yes, it would be. That's why we're not saying it. <laughs> but he keeps saying it. Yeah. Like like there's a really a proposal there. It's that, okay, the mid the uh, Mid-Atlantic's going to go one way, the Southern South's going to go another way, and then yeah. the New England's going to go another way. Yeah. Even the anti-federalists are saying, no, we're not saying that. Their argument was really about all of the states staying together still under the United States, but not having a strong of a sense as a, as strong a centralized power. Yeah. And it, Jay, if there's one thing I could say that Jay, that Alexander Hamilton might like about Jay in these series of papers that he wrote is that he's obviously really getting under the anti-federalist skin. Yeah. Because like they're really irritated about this fact that <laughs> he keeps acting like they want to break up into four different countries. Yeah. When. They never said that. Okay. They, their principal beef with the Constitution and the Federalist position primarily seems to be about within the framework of a centralized government, mm-hmm. how centralized it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Where the Federalists seem to enjoy using the, this classic debater's tactic of saying, this is what the other side's argument is, mm-hmm. and making it sound ridiculous and then rebutting it. Yeah. So throughout the next three papers, they're going to be, he's, Jay is acting like, 
this three or four countries idea was really something that that was yeah, really a federal position and yeah. it doesn't seem like it was based okay. on what their writings were and, and historically i mean i don't know i mean in your american history classes or any of your readings that you found like a serious proposal for well instead of the constitution we'd like to have the uh the protectorate of new england yeah and the uh, uh, aristocracy of the south and no that would all have been new yeah, yes. Would have all been very new. So one other thing that Jay points out in this, I think, is kind of, I, I don't know, it's it's maybe worthy of discussion, I'll put it that way, mm-hmm. was he, he mentions that basically the national government would be able to draw from this talent pool uh, essentially this cream of this crop, right? I was uh, looking at that you know, too, yeah. And, 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 you know, that the national government will essentially be better because they're basically going to be an all-star team derived from all the different 13 leagues. They're going to be a bunch of philosopher the, kings, you know, warrior poets. You know, and They're and the best and the brightest. The best and the brightest. And as a result, because they come from all of these states, they will uh, not be affected by necessarily an individual state pride. Okay, Because they'll have a, more of a national sense uh, about them. And, and then they would proceed with moderation and candor to consider and decide the, the means most pr- uh, proper to remove themselves from any type of difficult situation that arises or threatens the country as a whole. And, you know, that I think is, is, is interesting. I don't, I don't know that that has played out in the yeah, 200 plus years since. Yeah, as we're sitting here in 2017 <laughs> looking at, the, you know, how the federal government operates. Yeah. Indisputably, the best and brightest are the federal leaders. I'm not sure if I would agree with that. Yeah, no, I think quite often I hear, uh, you know, is this the best we've got? Is yeah. the current, current, current and I, In fairness, I <laughs> well, won't say that's not necessarily unique to 2017. No, 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 it's not. People have brought it up a lot. People but. brought it up, but, you know, Jay's, Jay's uh, hypothesis at the time is that, um, you know, we'll be able to, the one national government will draw the absolute really true great minds of whatever era it happens to be Mm -hmm. in and um that will result in just the most intelligent individuals working in the federal government and and that they will be so altruistic and only concerned with making sure that things run as efficient and as 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 best as it possibly possibly can and that will be their motive and their desire and maybe this just harkens back to we understand and realize that this is, at the end of the day, part of a large, roughly 10-month, 9-month sales pitch. And so some things are perhaps placed into a very rosy glow. Uh, this might be one of them. <laughs> well, you know, um, it might be just one of those areas where the, the Renaissance man or the, learn, you know, the, uh, yeah. sci- the, the mind of Jay's era you know, couldn't account for and predict the mindset of today where, you know, we've talked about in prior episodes how I think that the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists had in common was they lived in this post-Renaissance era where every, you know, everyone who was of a certain class level or learning level took pride in the fact of we are, you know, learned people. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of different skills and knowledge. We're heirs to the the uh, where is the legacy of like Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, those great thinkers, those great philosophers, mm-hmm. and they thought of themselves as writing for history, creating a, a nation for the for it, that the in the arc of civilization and in the progress of time. That's something that the Federalists and Anti-Federalists really hold in common. When you when you read the Anti-Federalist stuff, while they disagree on what the answers are, mm-hmm. both of their writings very much take the 
high-minded rhetoric tone of, we are making decisions now that are going to be consequential throughout the scope of human history and and development. Mm -hmm. And we're not just trying to make, you know, do this for some easy and convenient now. Yeah. This is really, really important. Yes. Which again, then this was the genesis of my question of what happened to Jay. <laughs> That's, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But, <laughs> but all that aside. But our mindset um, now is, you know, uh, you know, some more contemporary historians talk about the post-Watergate era, you know, yeah. of cynicism in government. Where yeah. The Federalists and the Federalists seem to agree in part that, you know, public service and government service was probably one of, if not the... High callings. High callings that someone could, you know, the idea back then was you would make your money doing some some low commerce type thing, Mm -hmm. make enough money, and then you would enter federal service or government service and try to help society as a whole. Yeah. Um, Whereas nowadays, government's not held in high esteem. So back then, as high esteem. Yeah. Back then, if you felt like you were one of the great minds of your age, you know, Mm -hmm. you would go into public service and try to... Make the society you live in, you know, a more civilized society or a better society. Better society. Whereas nowadays, maybe you would go and write an app for the iPhone. <laughs> you would, uh, <laughs> something about cutting rope or flinging birds across space and make your money, get out, buy yourself oh, okay, a private yeah, island. We live in a different time. We do. We do. So, we you know, he didn't, he didn't predict that uh, the society would necessarily be different to that extent down the road. No. But both sides had that in common then. It seemed like it you read the Anti-Federalist and, you know, they buy into the same idea as the Federalist of this is so important. Mm-hmm. We really need to think on this because this is going to affect generations yet unborn. Okay. Um, whereas nowadays you don't hear m- much of that uh, idea of this is the most important thing. It's just about like, well, we should do this for now. And just then to wrap up this this one particular paper, he, he concludes with basically a strong unified nation would be best in dealing with other sovereigns. And he makes reference to the 1685 uh, Genoa having to having to go and work with uh, King Louis XIV um, and to try to appease them. Uh, and in here, uh, just for listeners, um, apparently there was the bombardment of Genoa, uh, which was a military event uh, during the War of Reunions when France had bombarded the city of Genoa uh, from the sea between the 18th of May to the 28th of May, 1684. Genoa... Small Italian city-state, if I recall. It is. And they're basically, they had were allied with Spain for a very long period of time, um, but then ended up being allied with France uh, for a period of time. It looks like in October 1683, France was uh, had annexed some territory from the Spanish Netherlands, which started the War of the Reunions. And when Spain sent reinforcements, or was attempting to send reinforcements via the port of Genoa, uh, the French decided to punish Genoa. Uh, and it looked like the reason why they were using Genoa as a port, or Spain was sending things through Genoa, was that if I recall, I think that a lot of the Italian city-states tend to control the Mediterranean around that time and sort of be the gateway to uh, more Central Europe. Yeah, I'm sorry. All, all, all uh, goods that were transported between Spain and Milan ended up going through Genoa. So they, again, like you mentioned, it was it was in this route of necessity. Uh, and so they were sending things through Genoa, or attempting to, and uh, France decided to bombard Genoa. Um, but... And, and as a result of Genoa allowing Spain to send things through them, they apparently offended uh, 
Louis the Fourteenth, and he took it out on Genoa. And so then Genoa had to go over there and really, really, with the tail between its legs, you know, ask France for its forgiveness and King Louis the Fourteenth for forgiveness, in a fairly humiliating way that Jay discusses here uh, for the time. And his point being, and the reason why he brings it up here is that you know. Had Genoa been a powerful country, do you really think they would have come and had a cowtail to to the king of France, um, another sovereign, in that manner? And so, wouldn't America be better off to be one unified nation to prevent some sort of diplomatic embarrassments like this from occurring, uh, where you know one portion of us, one of the states, would have to go and really beg forgiveness from France or Britain or Spain or whomever? Uh, whereas, if we were a unified body. Uh, and under one strong federal government, that just would be something we wouldn't have to worry about. I think that's where Jay's at his strongest. I mean, essentially, yeah. what Jay seems to be saying, without specifically calling them out, is that Genoa is essentially the Rhode Island of Europe. <laughs> and uh, they got in this war, they were helping out an enemy of France, a much larger country, Spain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Spain, I would say, would be the. Probably the New York or the Virginia of Europe at the time. <laughs> yeah, uh, and you know France can't really retaliate against Spain because they're really, they're not going to stand for it. Yeah, but the uh, tiny little Genoa they can't really stand up for stuff. And you know it's hard to rebut the the hardcore brass tacks, black and white argument he makes. It is true, but I think the Iron Federals will say, well, of course it is. I mean, we're not arguing, yeah. you know, that yeah. stronger is better than weaker. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's a valid point. You know, that's that's where I guess, you know, we can't really fault Jay on that. That, yes, obviously, more country, more states getting together to pool their foreign policy and their military resources, obviously, they're going to have more. Uh, pool in the international system mm-hmm. than they would separately. Mm-hmm. I think the anti-federalist um, rebuttal to that would be, well, that's not what we're arguing anyways. Yeah. We've Why are all, we talking about The foreign policy <laughs> powers is given. Yeah. But then secondarily, uh, you know, he argues about, well, and of course, as a corollary to that, if we have one, co- once, one national government body, governing body making treaties and interpreting treaties, that would be better than you know, 13 separate authorities doing yeah. so. Uh, and again, it's it's hard to counter him on that, but I feel like the anti-federalist rebuttal f- to that mm-hmm. from their papers and their counters, it, it essentially is, well, we're not arguing that. Yeah. And the real arguments between the federalist and the anti-federalist seems to be more on the lines of internal power um, and not external power. I think they all generally agree that external power, they're all on the same side. It should be at the national level. They might differ as to degree, but not the kind. And that's why I think it's somewhat unfortunate that Jay spins this paper and several successive papers that really seems to be what I think anti-federalists would argue is a red herring argument about, mm-hmm. well, it's better to have a national foreign policy than a state foreign policy. But, you know, from the perspective of trying to win people over, why not start off off the bat with a topic that most people would agree with? And so Jay, in a way, is 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 convincing the readers that, hey, these federalist guys, yeah, I mean, that all makes sense. Because... Who's really going to stick around for 85 right? And that, <laughs> that I think, is where you really got it, is okay. that... Uh, so if they read the first half dozen, you know, and they agreed, well, hey, five out of those six that I read all seem logical yeah. to me, then, you know... He's grabbing the popular ground. And yeah. I'll tell you, reading this paper, you know, with the starting paragraph where he talks about how the Americas are so intelligent and well-informed, yeah. I don't know about you, 
but it very remi- much reminded me of like that situation with you know at work or at home where someone comes up to you, your boss might come mm-hmm. up and say, "You know, Justin, you're so brilliant and so wise on this issue of law." Yeah, I really like you take on this horrible case because no one is intelligent as you are. Or at home, we're like your wife was like would say to you, uh, you know, I just don't. You're so good at home repairs. Yeah, could you uh, fix go the, build a deck? Yeah, yeah can you go build a deck for me? <laughs> yeah, and that it might that that seems to be John Jay here. Yeah, he's the uh, he's the boss or the wife that's full of flattery, mm-hmm. who's telling you how brilliant you are, so well, you buy his position. I mean, again, that's a that's a kind of a tried and true way of persuasion. When mm-hmm. you start off by flattering people, then you also, you know, you in attempting to convince somebody to go and do something you want them to do, you you demonstrate to them all the ways in which you guys think alike, and you say, look, we're all on the same ground here. We're all on the same page. Here's here's all these these. I mean, you would agree with me on this, you agree with me on that, you agree with me on this. The third thing, well, then you should agree with me about this other thing that's a question. He laid the and, groundwork in, too, by talking and, about how America seems to be predisposed of people who are thrown together yeah. and they're homogeneously brilliant. Yeah, and uh, he kind of continued it on here. Uh, that pretty much sums up, I think, what he Jay gets at as far as Federalist Number 3. This is really his Fort Paul's argument. I think in the next yeah. couple of papers we're going to get into some of the other aspects he's arguing. He argues, but uh, uh, what we'll try to do in the next few is to really differentiate the sub-themes because they all stay on this general external focus theme, and we're going to try to parse those out because because I think that's the difficulty of them is they start to sound a little bit redundant in some ways. Yeah. yeah. Well, we look forward to seeing you there in uh, episode four of Paperless Federalists where we'll explore uh, Federalist number four. Tune in and uh, let us know what you think. Okay. Sounds good. See ya. If you like what you heard, please make sure to follow, like, and subscribe to the podcast, and we really appreciate any ratings or reviews we get on iTunes. If you go to our website at paperlessfederalist.podbean.com, there's a link that will take you to the podcast on the iTunes where you can click the Rate and Review tab. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.